Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You are about to hear a spoiler-free... Did you hear that, Andrew? Spoiler-free? Spoiler-free? Okay, I was going to talk about the Brad Pitt cameo, but I will not talk about that now. Nope. Spoiler-free discussion about the themes, the characters, and why this film is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. So I'm Rob Stinnett, and I'm here today with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up? What's up? Glad to be back. We're talking about some vengeance today. Vengeance. Yeah, we're talking about a film, Vengeance, and the reason we're doing spoiler-free, and we're going to do actually the first part of the podcast, no spoilers, and then once we get to the category, we will have some spoilers there. You can't talk about the meaning of this movie without ultimately talking about the ending, and so we'll talk about some of that, but I encourage you to go and listen to the podcast, see if it convinces you to see this movie, and then uh, go see it. We are recording this in the past, before this was streaming, but now... Since it is streaming for you all to see, we encourage you to log on to whatever that streaming streaming platform is. Maybe it's in the show notes and watch it before you listen to the end of this podcast. It is in the show notes and we don't know what the future holds, but you right now are in the future. So hello from us in the past. Uh, I hope you're enjoying the future. I hope America's still okay. I hope uh, wherever in the world. Actually, we have I don't know if you know this, Andrew. We have listeners like all over the world. We have. UK, Europe, Israel, Australia, like we're an international show and it's cool. And so for all of our international friends as well, if you want to understand America, this is probably one of the better films. I would agree with this. This film is all about America or about the idea of the idea of America. It There's a lot of layers. So let's get into those layers. But I think the very first place we have to start is B.J. Novak. B.J. Uh, Novak. Is, he is the writer director of this film. And I want to know, like, going into it, what are your thoughts and feelings about B.J. Novak, Andrew? Um, I, I think the real question is, what are my thoughts about Ryan from The Office? Right. Right? Because <laughs> I mean, that's, 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 that's who B.J. Novak is. Um, I, I actually have known him from very, very little. I remember he was in Inglorious Bastards. He is. That's uh, correct. Yeah. Back, back, like, a little over 10 years ago. And I remember when I saw that he was in this movie, I was like, what is Ryan from The Office doing in a prestige Quentin Tarantino movie? And he's actually quite good in it. And I think that was the first time where I thought like, oh, maybe B.J. Novak is something more. Um, And I think he's been kind of slowly working in the background over the last like 10 years doing little things he's in. um, Oh, I think the, the, the way he made his biggest impression on me, he's in Saving Mr. Banks. Oh, that's right. Which is actually a really like soulful, heartfelt movie about creating and he, he plays like uh, one of the songwriters who has some like uh, PTSD from the war. And he's actually really good in that movie, too. I think that was the thing that really t- turned me on to like, oh, m- maybe this guy has like a voice and is going to be something. So what's funny is like the office is filled with so many like lovable characters. Like I love Creed, like crazy Creed. He always says funny stuff. He's so great. But there's <laughs> Dwight. So weird. There's Angela. There's Toby. Like almost every character is lovable. And I think maybe the least lovable character in The Office is Ryan. Like, maybe this is a hot take or maybe everyone feels like this. But, like, I think he's probably the least likable character in The Office. And partially because he doesn't like Michael Scott, who is a creep. But eventually, like, we all love him. And I think his kind of disdain and uncomfort and, like, new guy. And I think because Michael Scott, like, has such a, like, bro crush on Ryan. And Ryan's always, like, a little, like, out and disgusted by him. Like, I don't know. I found him, like, to be a cold character in the office did you have that experience or is this just me yeah while all the other characters are put off by michael quite a bit as they should be that's part of the shtick of the whole show right um ryan always comes across as being better than everyone else right that's true yeah right like even when like when he's there and he's like still an intern he's like going to business school and is like i'm not going to be here forever like i i truly hate it here jim says stuff about like oh man i hope i'm I'm still not working here in five years but you can tell that he like has a certain like affinity and like love for the people there ryan always feels like he's better and then when he becomes the like antagonist when he becomes like the cfo or whatever uh in season three or four then he's like actually the antagonist he he always has this feeling of like i i'm outside of this family bro that's really insightful i do think that's like jim is like doing the office olympics and dwight cares about productivity there's so many other people who care about certain things in the office and ryan always just seems like I'm only above Michael, I'm above all of you. And so that like distance and I'm better than Eunice of him definitely makes him like douchey. I mean, for lack of a better word. <laughs> right. Um, right. And where my opinion turned is I realized like watching The Office, like 
by the time I started getting into season two, season three, you'd watch all the credits and you realize like, oh, he's actually one of the writers on the show. So yeah. I thought, oh, that's fun that he's the guy writing the script. And actually, so many of the characters, Mindy Kaling and different things like that are writers on the show. So yeah, Toby's that, one of the writers. Right. <laughs> he's one of the writers. And so <laughs> it's funny that they're the writing room is actually like, oh, we're just going to put you in the office. So BJ Novak doing a lot of interesting things, but this is his debut in a feature uh, writing directing role. And so um, I wanted to, I saw this movie. Actually, my buddy Corey Reynolds saw this movie and he's like, and I'm so proud of Corey. He never used to go see good movies, but now I think I've had an influence <laughs> on his life and he's seen some good movies. And so he texted me out of the blue, like, you have to go see Vengeance. So it was kind of on my list. I was aware of it. And then I was like, OK, I'm going to go see it. And then as, as soon as I saw it, I was like, Andrew, we got to talk about this film. Yeah. And so I said, let's talk about it. Let's do an episode. You went and saw it. I guess my question here is, should everyone else go see this film? And if so, why? Um, yes, I think this is absolutely a movie that people should see. And we've talked a lot of we've how how far into this podcast are we at this point? What are we like seven minutes in? And we yeah. haven't even talked remotely about what this movie is about. It's called Vengeance. And it's not really about vengeance at all. Vengeance sounds like the name of a Clint Eastwood movie, um, which this is not. Um, it's sort of a s- semi-comedic satire um, about um, like the urban elite versus the rural communities in America and the collision of that and the collision of those ideas. Yeah, I, I think experienced it. I did. Um, I'll give I'll try to give the pitch to it as much as possible or the short synopsis, which is this is a guy who is a writer for The New Yorker. He wants to be a podcaster because that's what every writer wants to do is that like podcaster where it's at. So he wants to get kind of like an NPR sort of place to give him his own podcast. And he's trying to find this idea. He ends up getting a call one night from someone in Texas that someone has died. And you have to come to the funeral and he kind of gets guilted into it. And so he ends up in Texas at this funeral. And then on his way back to the airport, the brother is like, hey, this wasn't an overdose. This was actually a murder and we need to solve the case. And the brother sounds insane. He sounds like a character from the podcast <laughs> S-Town. Did you ever listen to that podcast? S-Town? I have listened to S-Town. That, that pod, this movie reminded me so much of S-Town. I'm so glad you brought that up, which is a very niche-like podcast. It's, it's, it's produced by the people who do, who do Serial. Um, but th- where you think it's about something and then it keeps turning as you get more deeply invested in, in the characters and it turns into something completely different. So murder mystery podcasts are a whole subgenre, right? Like you right. can go on any podcast store. If you're a podcast listener, you've probably listened to Serial or S-Town or there's a million of them now. These sort of like murder mystery podcasts. They even are self-aware enough to say like dead white girls are like the holy grail of podcasting gold. And there's this real right. callousness of it. Um, and so and I think that's important to the character and the meaning of the movie is like he's not really caring whether she was murdered or not. He's just thinking like, oh, this is great content. And so anyway, that's kind of the story. Like, that's the jumping off point is it's a fish out of water story about this guy from New York who's trying to solve a murder. Doesn't really care if there's a mystery or not to it. He's more trying to do a character profile story and trying to do something deep, philosophical, this think piece about the divide in America. So if you watch the trailer for this movie, which I highly encourage this, it feels like it's going to be a movie that explores the ideas of america and where we are right now as a culture and i feel like what i felt this movie ended up being was it's a movie about the idea of exploring ideas and the how that does or doesn't bring us meaning and i think for somebody (laughs) like me and you who um uh you know have a podcast about the meaning of movies. Uh, I felt sometimes very personally attacked by this movie. Um, it, it has a lot higher ideas than I expected it to peddle in. Yeah, th- like this movie is evoking some of my favorite films. There will be blood. Like the opening shot of the movie is this girl who's like dead in a field trying to send a text out, can't send a text out. And the kind of opening image of the film, like using Save the Cat, like, This opening image is a woman laying in a field next to two oil rigs with like fire kind of coming out of them. And it's very much like a Paul Thomas Anderson nod of like, okay, this is oil. This is Texas. This is power. 
this is there will be blood and it like jumps into that but then what the story really is about and but, this but, is so- but before you jump off of that all that is happening while the country song red solo cup is playing over the top of it so it's the imagery is very Paul Thomas Anderson while the audio track is like very satire. Yes. And, and I think those are the two, you know, we talked about don't look up. And I think that's a movie that this is in conversation with um, where it's very much about this kind of cultural divide in America. And it's something that's almost impossible to talk about because everyone has a take on it. Everyone has a reason of why red states versus blue states. And we're all digging down into something and he tries to dig into it. And the more he tries to dig into the meaning, the more confused it gets. Um, but it's rooted in this idea. And I think it's almost something that we can't talk about anymore. We have to create art to explore. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to distill this down. If you had to give this like a ranking out of out of 10, um, what would what would you give it? I mean, I think I'm irrational about this movie because it checks so <laughs> many boxes of stuff that I love, like. I love film noir, and so this is very much, even though it's about a podcaster, it is very much like a murder mystery. It is like a memento. It is like a Chinatown. It is like, yeah, it is like a private uh, citizen going like and investigating this world that he doesn't necessarily belong in. The Coen Brothers' very first movie is called Blood Simple. It's also set in like West Texas, and this movie is very much in conversation with that. And I think he's very aware that he's like a director who's making his directorial debut about a murder mystery in West Texas, just like two young filmmakers named Ethan and Joel Cohen did. And so like, again, like there's so many levels of like meaning like that. And I probably shouldn't do this, but I feel like I'm grading in a curve. I, I texted a friend the other night and said, you have to go see vengeance. It's my second favorite movie of the year behind everything, everywhere, all at once. Like that's my number one. And probably nothing's going to knock it off that. But outside of that, Vengeance is probably the most fun I've had in a movie theater of, like, really stirring my thoughts and emotions. Like, Maverick is great. It's almost its own, like, category. But I don't know. There's something about this movie that, for me personally, was awesome. So I give it 9 out of 10, 4.5 stars, whatever you want to say. Like, that's where I would rate this movie. Now, this, this movie is also very, very personal to you as someone who lives in Texas. Correct. And I I mean, I'll talk about this more once we get into the categories, but like I live in Texas, but I'm like in Texas, but not of Texas. So I feel this very, yeah, (laughs) I live in Austin and I'm not from Texas, you know, so I do feel stranger in a strange land where I'm like, I'm not that in the casseroles or I don't really quite know why the Alamo is such a big deal. Like there's all these deeply Texas things that I'm like, that's cool. I don't know why we're doing this. And so I feel this tension as well, much like BJ Novak does. Yeah. I, I, I feel that um, I loved this movie, too. I liked that it continued to surprise me um, as s- someone who has had the conversation over and over again with friends and my wife about, like, what is going on with America and how how do we fix it? Like, why are we so to, like the conversation that starts this movie? That is what this movie is kind of built around. The, com- the question that B.J. Novak has is a question that I have. And so going into this movie, I was like, yeah, someone who's going to have the same questions that I have. And um, I felt that the movie was almost always answering them in a way that I didn't expect and in a way that made me feel like. Oh, I need to I need to listen. Um, but so I, I found this very resonant to me because of how much I connected with where the main character starts. Um, I do think it's a little uneven and I think that not all of the characters work and I think not necessarily all of the scenes work. Um, I went and saw it with a buddy of mine last night. Um, I liked it more than he did. I think he would probably give this movie more of a five out of ten. I'm going to give it a seven out of ten. Um, and his his criticism was that it felt more like a TED talk than a movie. Um, and I think this movie is peddling in so many ideas that there is a lot of talking and less kind of action. And from a classic cinema point of like show, don't tell. There's a lot of tell in this movie. But what this movie, as I said before, is talking about is it's talking about the idea of exploring ideas. And so in order to do that, there has to be a lot of exploring of ideas within the film. Um, so if you're down to like really like dig into these thoughts uh, within a fun satire and some good comedy, um, then this is definitely a movie for you. 
So while some parts are uneven and I felt it dragged a little bit and maybe the characters aren't always great, um, I, I give it a solid seven because I really loved like the story and what they were exploring. So Andrew gives it a seven. I give it a nine. It's probably really an eight. That's what I, that's the real number that I think it is. Like, <laughs> so I think somewhere in between the two. But but I I hear what your friend is saying, and I think like a lot of people are gonna like this movie may work for you or may not. I do think it feels like a movie that's about talking about ideas, and but it, then it also says how problematic that is. And mm-hmm. I don't think like a lot of people, as we've talked about in our don't look up episode. Go listen to that if you want to hear our full thoughts. But something people hated about Don't Look Up is they feel like they were being preached at the whole time. And kind of like what you said, just when you feel like this movie is starting to get preachy, all of a sudden it twists and you're like, oh, it's not that's not what it's actually saying. And right. so I think that's so important in the film. Right. I think with with Don't Look Up, your protagonists are right and their view is right. There is an asteroid coming at the Earth. It is going to destroy everyone and everyone around them is like denying it. And so it can feel preachy because your protagonists are correct. I think this movie does a really good job of constantly pulling out the rug from under the main character, but also many of the characters um, around him so that you as the audience are constantly asking questions of, oh, this person that I'm agreeing with or that the movie is asking me to agree with or not. Like it's it's challenging your ideas as you're watching it because the characters are being challenged as they're in it. You think you know where it's going and you don't like any good noir and like it's doing that with ideas. But but it is like there is a story that you're driving forward and there is a mystery that kind of pulls you through it. And I think it's a clever mystery. Um, And so I think that's why I liked it. So that's kind of our big picture of like the review of it. I think now, Andrew, I want to get into the categories. And so I have to warn you, we can't talk about the categories without talking about some spoilers. So you're welcome to stick around and listen to the whole episode. But if you're going to go see this, hit pause here, go watch the movie and then unpause this and uh, see the rest. And so, yeah, let's and you should go stream it on whatever that streaming platform is that it's streaming on right now. (laughs) Do you have any predictions of where it's going to land? Like what platform is going to get it? This is so strange because we're going to drop this in like two months and, you know, we're we're sitting here talking from from the past. I'm going to say Apple. I think it's going to be on Apple Plus. That's a good Apple TV Plus. This this seems like an Apple TV Plus kind of movie. Yeah, it's, you know, kind of Tory. I'm going to say HBO. I think this kind of HBO Max territory where it's like, hey, it's kind of an indie Mm. darling and we're going to find it. TCM, you know, like. We show old classics and this kind of has vengeance, like you said, Clint Eastwood, old classic feel. And so I'm going to say HBO Max. We'll there it see. is. Here, here's the thing, listeners, though. We don't know where it's streaming, but we know because we dropped the episode that it is streaming somewhere. <laughs> so, you know, you do a little bit of work and go find it. Also put in the show notes. Or it's also the in the ju- show notes. Get the Just Watch app. Do you have that app, Andrew? Oh, I, I do. I I I love it. Every time I'm trying to figure out where to like watch something, I always open that up and my phone works slow enough that my wife can always just Google it faster than I can get the Just Watch app open. And I'm always like, but I've got this cool app. And she's like, I don't care. I've got Google. But the app is great. I love the app. So if we can do a Kickstarter for Andrew's new phone, that would be great as well. <laughs> All right. Let's jump right into it. Andrew, who is your most meaningful character? Oh, we are entering spoiler town now. Here we go. My most meaningful character. I think it is impossible to talk about the meaning of this movie without talking about Ashton Kutcher, which is a sentence that I don't often say. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever said that? I don't. I honestly don't think I've ever said that sentence. Oh, quick aside. Do you know where BJ Novak actually got his start? Where's that? Not the The show. Nope. Punked. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) He was he was one of the cast members that would be like the people playing the pranks on celebrities. That's just like. Yeah, just like Dak Shepard, he was like one of one of the guys that got started on on punk. So he sort of owes his like career launch to at Ashton Kutcher. See, punk like another gift it has given this world is BJ Novak and all his B- creativity. BJ Novak, yeah, I didn't I didn't know that. I was listening to an interview uh, of him uh, l- l- last night after seeing this this movie, and I was like, no way, BJ Novak got started on punk. Regardless, so Ashton Kutcher is in this movie, and he plays this record producer. If you all are listening to this, you're now in the spoiler zone. So you've seen the movie. So you know who he played. But he plays this record producer who is out in the middle of West West Texas. And 
he is certainly the most interesting character who carries the most meaning outside of Ben, the B.J. Novak character. He is the character in the movie that turns the movie both times. In the center of the movie, he turns it by making Ben question his premise of the fact that everyone in West Texas is simple hicks. And then at the end, he turns the movie again by questioning B.J. Novak's entire mission to try and find meaning at all. Um, he is so meaningful because I think he is the best version of the Ben character and also the worst version of the Absolutely. Ben character. I'm going to say something shocking, but I don't mean it to be shocking, which is Ashton Kutcher deserves an Oscar nomination for this performance. It is He's really good. It is so electric every time he walks on screen and, and every time like his lines and his dialogue and his delivery. And he's just like taking these lines and he's chewing up the dialogue. He's hamming it up. He's going for it, but it's not overacting. It's so like earnest and endearing and it's kind of making bj novak's words come to life and i think if there's another problem i have with this movie is like none of the performances are great like um yeah bj novak is not a great actor he, i don't even know if he's a good actor you know he's definitely he's more like that woody allen like hey i'm the writer director like in this movie um and i think it's fine because he's literally playing himself he's playing like a writer and a podcaster and that's what he comes across as yeah. and so it's good. And I think he has a good scene or two. I don't want to say he's bad, but Ashton Kutcher is just absolute fire. And for me, I was like, I was sitting there watching it and I was like, I didn't know he had this in him. Did you were, were you just like, wow, did this guy <laughs> has he ever had anything close to this? No, I, I mean, I don't think acting wise he has. I've heard him interviewed several times. Um, he was on Dak Shepard's podcast, uh, Armchair Expert. And so I've listened to him just like talk for two hours. And so this performance actually didn't super surprise me because he does talk like this. I've listened to him on that on on that podcast. I've heard him. He did a, um, a presentation in, in front of in front of Congress once where he was talking about um, young girls being exploited and the work he does with his foundation to help that and he actually talks very intelligently and he doesn't talk like kelso from that 70s show like he right. does seem like a very smart intelligent human being who made his image based on kelso and punked so like you wouldn't expect him to be this really intelligent person and so i think my opinion of him as a person has changed so it didn't totally shock me when i saw him do this performance where he is very thoughtful and very calm and collected yet like quietly electrifying um, it, it felt more like the person that I expect he might actually be in real life. I, and probably, you know, I didn't know the punked background. If you don't know what punked is, it's a show where they'd like do practical jokes. Ashton Kutcher, like it was like the, you know, mid two thousands. I don't know. And he would just do these practical jokes on all sorts of people. Maybe it was earlier than that. Nineties or late no, 90s, it was, it was, it was like mid two thousands. Okay. Anyway, practical jokes, that sort of thing. It was like, ha ha ha. It was Ashton Kutcher was like, Dude, where's my car? That 70s show, that sort of thing. And that's kind of what his career's been when you say that. Yeah. Like, that's what you think of. And I think, like, not just his intelligence, but he was very empathetic. When he first goes and is, like, talking about the girl and seeing, like, uh, th this kind of artist who's there. And he's like, hey, I want you to just stop and think about a record. And your life is a record. And he's just, like, giving this whole speech about it. And yeah. it's so empowering and thoughtful and interesting and it's intelligent but it's surprising and at first you're like is this a joke and then as he keeps talking for you're sure like, wow yeah. this is like really really good and i think it's kind of a magic trick because so many of the characters are flat and one-dimensional and they're just kind of hee-haw we're from texas and so he definitely pops and sparkles but i think in any sort of movie he would really have this sort of power that he has and i do agree that he's only in two scenes and they're by far the most interesting scenes of the movie. Yeah. And it's interesting because Ben goes down to Texas to he does this podcast to begin with because he's trying to find the reason for the divide in America. Right. In in s simple terms, it's almost like he's looking for unity. Right. He's trying to solve the problem. Right? Well, he's like, trying to do you... two things. Like one, he's trying to <laughs> define the problem. Like he has an early speech. Sure. Early on, I'm going like... to define it. He's like, hey, what's actually separating us is not space, but it's time. We're text messages. And he's like, is that a story? Yeah. And she's Which like, is really interesting. <laughs> it, it is. 
but it's it's just a pitch for a you know a podcast it's not really like it's an undefinable problem right because it's not one thing it's this confluence of technology and election results and you know where we are and yada 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 and and right. that's that's kind of what the movie attacks is like you can't boil what's happening in our country and maybe in our world as a whole to one headline or one sexy idea for sure um but when he when he has the, the that scene where he's with the girl at the at the record place and he's encouraging her by mapping out this beautiful idea of your sound um and how that gives you meaning within the world it's pretty much the perfect encapsulation of what Ben has been trying to find, right? He's trying to find this sweet spot of unity almost, right? He's, he's trying to define why there is a breakdown. And Ashton Kutcher is this person from Texas who has big ideas. He's like the holy grail for this Ben character. And as he continues to talk, we find him empathetic. We find him... Um, to, to to be sort of the like the core central. I mean, if, if this is following the hero's journey, like story structure, this is like finding Ashton Kutcher is Ben finding the like treasure in the inmost cave. He is he is the like holy grail for this podcast. Well, he's also like Gandalf and Obi-Wan Kenobi in some sort of sense, because he's essentially like calling Ben out. But he does it in a really surprising way, which yeah. is he's like, I know what you're trying to do. I know who you think I am. I know who you think we all are. And we're not that. And there's something more here. And he doesn't say it that obvious or that on the nose. There's actually, I think, more depth and character behind it. Yeah. And then BJ Novak kind of is like, you just see that he's smitten uh, by him. And so he's like, okay, what, what would you say to me as a writer? Like, what am I supposed to do? And Ashton Kutcher stops and he thinks and he says, you know what? Nobody writes anything. All we do is translate. So just listen, even to the silence. That translation, that's your voice. And that like little speech that he gives about what writing is and yeah. you see what it means to him. And I was like, one, it's incredible writing, which is actually by BJ Novak. But two, it's just his delivery in it is so powerful and uh, it just really makes it come to life. And so he has this like real depth of being the hero of the movie. And then he's also the villain of the movie which I think is like the power of his character is he's so right. absolutely good and everything that's right and hopeful about the world in one scene. And then he's absolutely like despicable and wrong in the other scene. Right. Which I think we have to talk about. Do you want to talk about that scene? Let's I, I want to get that when we get to most meaningful scenes, because I think we can get back to there. Um, OK, but before we leave most meaningful character, I do want to talk about BJ Novak. I think what gives B.J. Novak as a writer permission to kind of like satirize all these Texas characters and that sort of stuff is he's also satirizing like New Yorkers, like the opening five minutes of the movie between B.J. Novak and who the friend that he's talking to. I had no idea who it was. And you actually reminded me it's John Mayer that he's talking. It's with John Mayer. It's music legend John Mayer, <laughs> who who I think is playing himself. He is in the credits as John. And they are despicable in uh, this opening scene. They're not despicable. They're just so self-absorbed, you know, where they're like, you know, I've ever sometimes I've thought about like what it would be like instead of dating like six to eight people at a time, what it feel like to date two to three people at a time. You know, like that's the type of stuff they talk about. And they're yeah. like, you know, dating someone more than a month is just a serving suggestion. You know, they're just like these hipster like <laughs> kind of guys and they're saying 100% after everything, and they're just standing <laughs> at a party, but they're not talking to anybody, and they're texting as they talk. But even more so, you just see this, like, emptiness in his life. You see how, like, sad and pathetic his life is, and he's kind of, like, really attacking his own existence as not being fulfilling, as not being—there's no depth in any of his relationships. They're all kind of one-night stands-ish. And I think, like, that's so powerful. And so for him to go from that— to actually finding a family and then actually vengeance. Like you said, this movie is called vengeance and it has nothing to do with vengeance. Well, until the very end where he actually goes and shoots Ashton Kutcher's character at the very end. And we'll talk about that scene, but I think like that full arc overall is really important. That opening scene. The other thing that I think it does really well is it does a similar thing to the movie get out 
which I think is a better movie. But it does something where we are used to in a, in a movie about race with Get Out to sidebar for a, a second. We're used to the racist people being like hicks, right? Like redneck hillbilly. That's like our car- caricature of racist. And so it takes yep. um, in a movie that is exploring racism. It goes after like East Coast elites and says there's a different kind of racism that we're not talking about. And it turns that into its its horror premise. I think this is doing a similar thing going after sort of East Coast elites as well in its in its satire by we're used to the douchebaggy people being like the frat boy. Right. There's a stereotype to being um, like a shallow douchebag. Yep. And what's making these two shallow is their intellect. Right. They're sitting there bantering really high level ideas like they're they're not like despicable, gross, like throwing out pickup lines and catcalling. Right. They're talking about like the philosophy of human relationship. And that is making them shallow, you know, like it's it's self-referential and enough that it's kind of like taking the mick out of itself from the beginning that you just kind of dive in because you you don't feel like you're being preached at because it is going after an audience I didn't think it was going to. Yeah, because he's pretty harsh. Like, he's really kind of, like, attacking, kind of making fun of these characters. They are just, like, a little bit, like, kind of hee-haw-ish. Like, especially when you first meet many of them, they're just like, oh, you know, we're we're just simple folk, and we have rifles in the back of our truck, you know, and, like, there's just a lot of, like, stereotyping to it, but he's kind of playing with type of, like, hey, I'm going to stereotype the most vapid new york intellectual and i'm going to stereotype kind of the person who lives in abilene and like that's my starting point and that takes me to my most meaningful scene which um we've talked about ashton kutcher's scene and we'll talk about the ending more in a moment but i do think whataburger is such an incredible character in this movie (laughs) um As someone you describe it as a character yeah (laughs) a character of whataburger (laughs) as someone who's from texas there is an irrational love of Whataburger. Like, I can just tell you that. Like, it's just like people adore that place in a way that I don't get. Like, I'm more of an in and out guy, which will probably like my Texas friends listening will probably be out. We also have a place called Pete Harry's in Austin, which I think is like just as good as in and out. And so it's good. But like people in Texas, it doesn't matter. Like they love Whataburger like it's a family member. Like they truly do. It's like the Texas flag. Like there's this love. And the way that this movie gets it right, I think it's so smart. Uh, he has this quote, which is like, asking why you love Whataburger is like asking why you love Christmas or a summer night or why you love your dog. You just love it. And that's how love works. And that's how he explains Whataburger. And I think it's so incredible. <laughs> when, when they first started that scene where it was like, please describe Whataburger. Right. And, and he's like, like, I was leaning forward just like he was like every time he'd ask a follow up question. I was like, yes, because I've I've had I've had friends from from Texas. Like I've I worked on a on a show for a while. And we would occasionally tour in in Texas. And the like the Texas members of the cast would be like, oh, we got to go to Whataburger. And I was always like, why? Like, why? Like, why is this different than McDonald's? Like, what makes this so good? I've eaten it. It's it's fine. <laughs> like, I was really hoping someone would, like, have the answer. And the fact that the answer is there is no answer. Sometimes you just love things is so much the heart of this movie of intellectualizing things to the point where everything has to have a intellectual answer is missing the point a lot of the time. Well, and this girl, Abilene, you know, they're they're saying the whole time, like, hey, she's uh, she's never touched an Advil. Like, that's something that almost every character says about her. Like, oh, she's never right. touched an Advil. And this is meanwhile, while the 17 year old is like pouring vodka in her coffee. And so you're kind of a little suspect of like, really, like for coming from this family who seems to drink a lot, even at underage, this girl yeah. never touched an Advil. And so then I finally, actually, like, I actually missed Miss Dove Cameron pouring, pouring the vodka into her her coffee until the second watch and then i was like hold on a second yeah <laughs> like this time and then she's like sitting next to her grandma like drinking vodka in the morning and i was like wait this is yeah exactly it's great dove cameron is really good in this movie by the way but uh anyway she's that and then you realize like at this kind of climactic moment where it seems like everything's fall apart 
his car actually gets bombed and so it's, the stakes have really risen and he's like what have i gotten myself into and then the grandma just kind of says well everyone knows that she's kind of you know a pill popper and then bj novak feels so hurt and then outside this waterburger he finally says everything he wants about the family of yeah. he's like you guys follow your heart well maybe you should instead follow your head because your head like science and evidence and it's kind of it, it ranted like a the nastiest Facebook post or the nastiest kind of Twitter feed where it's just like, mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you everything that I actually think about Hick Texans. And he just like obliterates his family. And the fact that it happens in the backdrop of a Whataburger parking lot. And like that's in so many of the shots of that scene. It's just really, really incredible that he's at their most like kind of like holy place. He is like attacking everything about them is like so amazing. And I love that scene. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about the setting of it being that Im important um, of it's 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 almost. Yeah, it's ripping them apart emotionally sort of at their temple, you know, like, yeah, it, it makes it it makes it more more sacrilegious. It's it's more sacred, basically. Right. Like it's it's deeper because it's at a Whataburger. Well, and and the sister named Paris, like there's Dove Cameron, who's a sister named Kansas mm -hmm. City and Isabella Amara, who's the other sister named Paris. And so she has this great comeback where he's like attacking her. And then he's like, he's like, you know, you people, that's uh, that's a microaggression. And then she's like saying, y'all, that's a you know cultural appropriation. And so she's using these very like woke liberal language like to combat him. And so it's just such a great picture of like oh this is how every facebook thread that goes really wrong this is what it looks like and it's happening right in the waterburger parking lot and i just thought like i mean i know your buddy said it's a very talky movie but like actually i do feel like they were like showing not telling like this is what spills over on our social media feeds all the time and and it right. comes right after a scene which is they've just picked him up from the hospital they've actually been really loving and he's actually like where you think it's going is like oh he's learning these are good people and Texans actually have a heart and there's actually something beautiful there. But, you know, moments later, he's just eviscerating them in such a nasty way. And so I thought that was such a great scene. All right. And Andrew, I think most meaningful scene. What's yours? Like maybe specifically, let's talk about the ending. I I mean, I so when we originally were going to jump on here and you said this is going to be a spoiler free discussion. I was like, I have no idea how to talk about this movie in any kind of depth without talking about the final scene. Because uh, the final scene with Ashton Kutcher in the uh, opium den with the American flag draped over the door um, is sort of the thesis statement of this movie. You know, the obvious version of this movie is that these two collide together, sparks fly, and then they find this common ground in unity. And with this movie talking about ideas as much as it is, you think, OK, we're going to land on this beautiful, unified idea. And Ashton Kutcher has that in the middle of the movie where he starts to really get there. And we get to this final scene. I said earlier that Ashton Kutcher represents the best version of B.J. Novak's character, right? Like what Ben wants to be. And then it also the absolute worst version, which is where your ideas become so central that you're so intellectual about everything that everything becomes meaningless. But I think what makes that moment so powerful in this idea is the big payoff scene, right? Is he goes and he finally gets Ashton Kutcher to admit to the murder. It was me. I killed her. And he takes out his little recorder and says, haha, I got you. And it's been done in how many movies or how many sure. TV shows, right? Where the yeah. person like finally gets the thing. And then after he does that, he hits pause and he's like okay you're gonna go to jail that sort of stuff and then ashton kutcher's like oh that's great do you need me to take that again and then bj novak is totally flummoxed like what do you mean do you need me to take that again and then what ashton kutcher does is he gives he talks about the whole take cycle and he says well at first i'm gonna be a villain but then other people are gonna start going after the family and seeing like oh what's wrong with the family and then other people are gonna start going after you and like oh you just exploited and he gives like a prophetic spot on explanation of exactly how the take cycle is going to work. And he just shows this, like what BJ Novak's next six months to a year is going to look like after this podcast is published. And after it's published, no justice will be done. Nothing will happen to bring this girl back. And it's just all meaningless. 
And like we've talked about everything everywhere all at once of this idea of like eventually with everything as a meaning, nothing as a meaning. That's what it says about a take cycle. It's like once everyone kind of has a take on something, it becomes so much noise that it's the take against the take and the pushback. And again, that's a big high idea. And this is why I think this movie is more than a TED talk. This is why this movie is more than just like talking about the ideas because you feel it, dude. You feel it in that moment of how devastating it is to BJ Novak that all this podcasting, all this stuff that he's been working on really has no meaning because it's not going to help this girl's life. It's not going to bring her justice. It's not going to give the family dignity. All it's going to do is create more content for a corporation which probably funds opium dens. Right. And and the the difference, what well, the reason I say that Ashton Kutcher's character is like the worst, the best version of what Ben wants to be and the worst version is because he is okay with it in that moment. Is he says like this is how messed up the world is, right? Like everything is meaningless. So like how do we like let's let's jump in and have fun in the middle of that. I also think the way that people talk about the party is really, really important because this party that happens like I don't know how it feels like it happens every night, but this party that happens a lot and I'm going to mess up the quote, but essentially they're like. Everyone was there, but nobody admits to it is the idea of like everyone goes to this party, the police go to it, the local people go to it. I think he said uh, everybody goes, but no one was there. Yes, that's that's what it is. Everybody goes, but no one was there. And I think that's this thing that we're talking about with America, which is like when when we're all doing this thing, it's like everybody goes, but no one's there. We're all a part of it, but no, none of us really admit that we actually have fault in this. Yeah, and it is, which gets us to the very end of the movie, which comes very abruptly after after that scene. Um, B.J. Novak uh, del- deletes the whole the whole podcast, which, as a sidebar, would not be possible. That's not how the cloud works. No, I thought that same thing. I thought, I'm like, <laughs> there, there is certainly a backup somewhere on a server. <laughs> like, I was like, this is brought to you by the computers at Jurassic Park. Like, it's just like, oh, I'm going to delete it all. And it's all gone. <laughs> I was like, f- f- like thematically and functionally, there there needed to be a moment where he like hits delete, but uh, there's there's no way to delete the you know, NPR's finished version of your podcast from your phone. Like that's just not how it works. Um, but regardless, he like trashes his whole journey, right? The thing that he has been trying to build his life around before the movie even starts, right? He's trying to build his opus. He's trying to find the best take. He's done it. It's confirmed that he's done it. He's going to get syndicated on basically NPR. Terry Gross, NPR's Terry Gross actually has a cameo. She's the she's the voice on on, on the phone playing like a fictionalized version of herself. That's right. Um, like he's he's won. Um, he's he's done everything that he, he he wants to do. And he ends up deleting it because he realizes that it's meaningless, which is very everything everywhere all at once. Like they're very much coming into these ideas of like the nihilism of like does what you do actually have have meaning? Yeah. And and I gave the speech before where I was like, the only thing that really matters is like looking at yourself. And that's like a Rob Stinnett answer. But that's not what this movie offers. This movie actually offers like nothing really matters. So burn it all down because there's no hope, which is why he like kind of does this like shocking thing of like committing vengeance because it's like, hey, if you don't take matters in your own hands, no one else will which is also a very kind of like Texas cowboy idea that he partakes in at the end of the movie. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, the what what is what is the very last line of the movie? It's very very memorable. Do you remember it? She has this amazing quote which is in my life everything starts with regret, ends with regrets. Regrets in the middle. It's all regrets. Make them count. And that's the last line of the movie. The idea that it's all regret Make him count. That's actually what I texted you when I got out of the movie. Like, I just texted you that quote to tell you that I'd seen the movie. That's a really, like, depressing. It's this weird mix of depressing and hopeful at the same time, right? Like, you're not going to find a way out of regretting. So how do you make those regrets count? It's this weird paradox that I think is what the movie is pushing you towards the whole time of this whole thing is a paradox there's not an answer 
I, that's why I give this movie a nine out of 10 because I'm like, listen, man, we're dealing with something so complex and a lot of people talk about it and write about it. And the New York times covers it every single day. And we wrestle it to the ground and our politicians will get up and say, this is what matters, whatever else. But this movie like drills into it. And paradox is the right word. This tension both ways. And it's all regrets, which means like, you're not going to fix this. You're not going to do this perfectly. You are going to mess this up. If you try to like touch this, thing you're going to end up with blood on your hands or you're going to end up with oil on your hands or whatever sort of thing you can't get near this like cultural divide without getting really really messy and so you're going to regret it it's all regrets but make them count there some regrets are better than others and i think that tension of like hopelessness and hope is what makes this movie so powerful yeah i mean because like the ultimate decision at the end for him to like shoot ashton kutcher right like in a sense, he got vengeance, right? He completed the mission and avenged the death of this person that he grew to care about or the family that he grew to care about. He probably saved other people from being drug out to the middle of nowhere to die. Probably no one else was going to stop Ashton Kutcher because we see how inept the law in, in, enforcement was there in this story in in that community. So all those reasons you can be like, oh, I'll that was the right decision, right? That was good, right? But then on the flip side, Ashton Kutcher's character was like actually doing good things in the community. I do think one of the like quote that's in the movie, which is like BJ Novak very early on, because the brother says is the first person to bring up the idea of vengeance. He's like, we've got to avenge Abigail. But I think yeah. what's so interesting is the brother wants to avenge Abigail based on his own biases. He's like, oh, it's the cartel. It's the Mexican drug dealers. Like that's who did it. And so he's yeah. talking about like a war with the drug dealers and that's what we're going to do. Or what he realizes is like, oh, BJ Novak is going to like expose these drug dealers. And then people on Reddit are going to come and kill the drug dealers. Like that's right. kind of ultimately their plan, which is amazing and hilarious. Um, but in the middle of all that, BJ Novak's like, I don't really, you know, do vengeance. I'm not like a Liam Neeson character. Like that's not what I do. And so for him to say, <laughs> I don't do vengeance. And then that to be his final act. I think it's like kind of this beautiful poetry symmetry as well. Yeah, it's so paradoxical. It's really hard to put into a sentence, but he cares about this family, right? He learned that he did does, in fact, even though he has a huge tirade in the Whataburger parking lot, but he learns that he does care about these people. And so he avenges the death of their daughter for some of it's for himself. Some of it, I think, is for them. Um, does he regret it? Probably. But did he do it out of love? So is that does that regret at least count? Yes. So it's like in all of your wrong decisions, are you do doing them from like a place of love or because you care about people? Mm. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, I think this movie is something a story about people using other people like very early on, like he's using Everyone near him, BJ Novak is, right? Like all these sort of girls that are in his phone, he's using the girl who has the one night stand with. Even this family, he starts using them. And, the, you know, the brother uses him to like, I'm going to avenge her. You know, it's like everyone in our life is like a prop and someone who can help us accomplish something that we need. And then when we live like that, it's so, so meaningless. When we, when all of our relationships are just like, okay, this can help advance my cause. Like the point of this human being across from me is someone who can help me get closer to what I'm right. trying to accomplish. And that's what I'm going to do in life. When we look at people like that, it is a dark, dark hole. And I think yeah. ultimately, if there's any meaning in this movie, that's what I see of like all these people who are using other people for something else and using them as like props instead of a real three dimensional of like, who are you? What are your hopes and dreams? Like, what are you actually trying to do? Where, yeah. you know, like part of the reason people in this movie are so flat is because that's kind of how we look at each other. You know, these are like social media profiles that are walking around versus actually like real living, breathing human beings with hopes and dreams and fears. And so it is this sort of story about like someone who's like, and he has this like self revelation. And I think I kind of feel about BJ Novak the way that I felt like my Ryan to BJ Novak thing, which is like, I was kind of out on Ryan, but then when I really realized how great BJ Novak is, it made me like him more. 
And Ben in this movie, I was kind of out on him and like, ah, he's so selfish and he's using all these people. And then when he gets this sort of thing of like, you know what, this podcast, I've been trying to do it and there is no meaning to the story. I actually am what's broken in this story. And it, you know, I'm empty and I'm hopeless. And him coming to that revelation at the end is really what gives it depth and soul. Yeah, I think I, I, that, that's a really succinct, sort of beautiful way of of framing that. I think so many movies explore the idea of like money and work versus love and relationship. And I think this is a really smart modern take on that that theme. And I think we care less about money in this modern day as a vocation. And we care so much about our ideas. It's really putting putting that on on the chopping block of like, are your ideas and is the legacy that you're trying to build around intellect um, better than or worth sacrificing deep relationship in your life? Yeah, having a take at the expense of someone is really difficult. And so don't do it. Mm That's, That's it. my that, take. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, this is a fun movie. I hope that some of you go and check it out and see it, wrestle with it. I'm curious, like, if you see it, where are you at? Is this a five-star movie? Is it a seven-star movie? A nine-star movie? Like, uh, this out of scale of one to ten? Like, where where do you rank it? And so let us know. Join our Facebook group. Send us an email. Let us know what you thought of the movie, what you thought about other movies. Uh, this has been fun to talk about. Andrew, good job today. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think trying to talk about a movie about the idea of talking about ideas about America, which I love and try to talk about the idea of was very difficult. And I think I stumbled my way through this trying to navigate the paradox. There's many layers of inception in this episode. I hope you got <laughs> so to many. some of them. But I appreciate <laughs> you coming along on the journey. Until then, we'll see you the next time on The Meaning of the Movie. Bye, folks. <laughs>